The conversation you're about to hear was recorded a few weeks before Judy Human passed away on March 4th, 2023. This episode featuring Terry Wilder and Shamir Smith is the second of five final episodes that will be published over the next few weeks. All episodes of The Human Perspective will remain available indefinitely at judithhuman.com. Welcome to The Human Perspective, a podcast with the internationally recognized badass disability rights activist, Judy Human. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to The Human Perspective. Today, we are going to be talking about long COVID. I'd like to introduce you to Terry Wilder and to Shamir Smith. Why don't we take a few minutes for each of you to introduce who you are? Tell us some interesting tidbits about you. Terry, would you like to go first? Sure. Thanks for this invitation to speak with you today on this important topic. So I'm Terry Wilder. A little bit about me is I'm Southern, so you may hear a little accent in my voice. I currently live in the Midwest. I have historically been an HIV and LGBTQ plus activist and have been doing that work since 1989. But in March of 2016, I was diagnosed with myalgic encephalitis, which folks often refer to as MECFS. You may also hear it referred to as chronic fatigue syndrome, although many of us in the community don't like that phrase because it can be a little stigmatizing. And I was diagnosed after years of not feeling well. So finally got diagnosed and have had kind of waxing and waning symptoms, have, you know, missed out on lots of things in my life because of this particular disease. And right after I was diagnosed, I uh, got connected um, with the organization Emmy Action to engage in activism. And it has been a great organization to be a part of as a volunteer, but also a paid consultant. And, you know, my dream is to have many of the services and funding that my friends with HIV have, because it's such a great model of care. Do you consider yourself to be a person with a disability or a disabled person? I do. I do consider myself to be a person with a disability. You know, I'll say that the first year of my diagnosis, I was frozen in fear because I had always been fighting for the rights of other people with disabilities. And, you know, it's very different um, when you're an ally and then to be part of the community you know, I had to spend my first year of my diagnosis really kind of unpacking what does this mean for my identity? Because I had one identity the day before I was diagnosed. And then the day I got diagnosed, I was like, I have a disability. I have some clarity on what's happening and why my body doesn't do the things that I want it to do. What does this mean are people going to treat me differently? Are they going to perceive me differently? And so it took a long time to process that and be willing to disclose to other folks. Of course, I told my family uh, because they were very worried about me because I was so sick. It was interesting to kind of think about, well, all of my friends with HIV had to process disclosure and you actually taught people how to disclose in workshops. Well, now you need to apply those concepts to yourself. And you used to always talk about how disclosure can be empowering and that it's about visibility and pride. Okay, well, you're going to talk the talk. You've got to, you know, get on board here. So there was a lot of time to sit with myself and really think about all these things around disability. What does it mean to be engaged in disability justice? What does it mean to have crip pride? So let's hold on to this. I want to get back to it. But Shamir, I'd like you to also jump in now. So could you tell us a little bit more about yourself? Have you had disabilities previously? When did you get diagnosed with long COVID? Did you have any engagement with the disability community prior to this? Yes, um, I'm Shamir Smith. I was a, a former, uh, I am a former Baltimore City Public School teacher. I taught for five years. 
Um, I just got some news in the mail that my retirement um, paperwork has been accepted. So I'm officially retired from uh, BCPSS here in, in Baltimore, which, uh, you know, gave me feelings of, of sadness, uh, but also feelings of relief. I am retired early uh, because of long COVID, which I've been living with now for um, almost three years. Um, it, it's amazing to say that, that I have been living with long COVID for three years. And in the three years that I have been an, a, a patient advocate, a paid consultant, a speaker, I've been a writer. Uh, recently, um, uh, Terry and I both wrote chapters in Fiona Lowenstein's The Long COVID Survival Guide. I, I testified before Congress. And I'd like to call myself very humbly one of the first Black women uh, who publicly discussed my long COVID story with the media, um, with my friends and social circles. Um, and I made it very public. I'm very honest. And I've been very transparent about my journey since March of 2020. And um, it has been a remarkable journey, to say the least. Um, and when I say remarkable, I don't always mean very positive. It's been it's been a journey of a lot of highs and lows. Uh, I've experienced my first bouts with medical racism, which I had not experienced, or I did not know that I was experiencing prior to my illness. I've had to fight for every single thing that I have achieved, including a diagnosis. Um, I've had doctors uh, look at me and, and call me combative and call me aggressive because I knew more than them. I was asking the right questions at the wrong time, um, quote unquote. I also have done a lot of educating of, of the Black community and also trying to educate more white spaces about um, the plight of being a Black, uh, now disabled, poor woman who lives in an urban community. Because I think that um, my population um, is in the community is very vulnerable, and I want people to understand exactly what that looks like. And it doesn't always look like Sharonda standing on the corner. It can be Shamir, who went to Morgan State University and graduated with a major in English and literature and language, who taught for five years. It can be anybody. You can be uh, making a nice salary one day, and then, as Terry mentioned, the next day, you can't move, you can't eat, you can't swallow. And so I uh, try very hard to make my experience known and to make it real for people um, so that it's not whitewashed. I do consider myself to be a disabled person. I did not have very much experience with the disabled or engagement with the disabled community before I became sick, aside from, and to, to my chagrin and to my own shame, aside from my students who were intellectually, you know, challenged, um, you know, writing IEPs, uh, individual education plans, and, you know, 504s for behavioral plans. And during my last year of teaching, I became more involved in researching conditions uh, working to create lesson plans and activities geared towards uh, my students who were in my class um, because everybody was together. It was an integrated learning environment. And so I didn't know as much as I, I should have known. I, I, did, I certainly didn't know as much as I do now. I am a disabled woman. Um, there are days, you know, I can't get out of the bed. I can't talk on the phone. I can't remember my name. I can't remember my phone number. I could not tell you who was calling me, even though there's a photo there on the phone that indicates who they are. And there are days where I uh, I still suffer with suicidal ideation because, because of, of what I've experienced that has caused me to be disabled. Um, as I was looking over some paperwork today, I looked at every single part of my body that has been affected by long COVID. And the question is always asked, you know, will you be able to return to work or in any capacity? And I, I always have to say, not the way that I ever used to, and, and, and not, I don't expect to ever again. About a year ago, I put out a call on social media and I said, I was kind of joking because I'm kind of sarcastic. And I said, hey, you know, if anybody wants me to come to your house and um, sit with your pets because I'm not doing much and I can't do much, I said, I would love to do that. And then all of a sudden, <laughs> over the last year, I've gotten like over 15 or 16 clients and I, I, I pet sit for about two to eight days per time, which is really good for a disabled person like me because I don't have to do much and I can pretty much stay in one stable environment. So that's who I am. And I'll be moving to Poughkeepsie soon. So I'm excited about that. That's another fun fact. <laughs> Poughkeepsie, New York. 
Yes. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> Why are you going there? Oh, because I'm, I'm my boyfriend's there. So we're going to move in together in July. <laughs> That's really nice. Yeah, I'm excited about that. Thank you. Shamira, if we could talk a little bit more about the discrimination that you experienced as a Black woman when you were dealing with doctors. You were saying also that you may have experienced it earlier, but you didn't realize you were. Do you want to talk a little bit more about that and how you also are working with other Black women on this particular aspect? Absolutely. When I first went to the hospital, which at that time, uh, March of 2020, to discuss my symptoms, I had, you know, made a list of symptoms. I tried to anyway, because I was so dizzy. I was so nauseous. I, I had completely, you know, lost the color in my face. You know, my mouth was just plastered, which is dry. Everything on my face was dry. I could not cry. My head was burning, which I later found out was occipital neuralgia. The nerves around my brain stem and the back of my neck were inflamed. Um, and I, I shared all of these things with with doctors and they would just kind of like look at me like, what are you talking about? And um, when I would sit in emergency rooms, I would tell doctors I thought I had COVID, um, even though I did not ever test positive for it. But as we know now, you don't have to test positive to have COVID. And um, the doctors would just kind of like say, no, that, that that can't be true. And I've always considered myself to be a well-read woman, in part because as a Black girl growing up, I, I was told that I had to. I had to be smarter than um, my white counterparts. I had to be smarter than the next girl to be considered important. And so I would actually sit and talk to these doctors about the research that I had read and things I had taken in. And they would look at me and they would say, uh, no, that's not true. Go home. And there were some doctors, some male doctors, white male doctors who would talk very slowly to me. They would be very antagonizing towards me. I had one doctor call me aggressive. He called me aggressive and he looked at me with, you know, pointing his finger because I was trying to convince him at the time of July 2020 that COVID was causing brain issues and he needed to do some further research. And also I would see white men and, and, and other men that were being treated before me in the emergency room. They were getting care. I, I looked across in the emergency room and I could hear the doctor say, we're going to presume that this white man has COVID. But when it came to me, it was, okay, pack your things up. You're fine. Go home. And so what made me very infuriated was I thought to myself, as a school teacher, I say, how many of my kids are experiencing this same kind of treatment or will experience this same kind of treatment when it relates to um, coming to the doctor about COVID? Because I knew that this was going to be at least a national phenomenon. And I knew that once again, like many other uh, things that uh, are, are hidden or um, uh, are misinformed in the Black community, I knew that we would be the last to get the information and the education. And so I thought to myself, I have to speak out about this. I couldn't sit by and not say anything. But the beauty about the educational portion about long COVID is groups like Emmy Action, as Terry mentioned, who, who I'm working with now, um, uh, helping to increase you know, volunteer numbers as more diverse volunteers in the organization. This group and, and, and other groups who, who, who dealt with chronic illness, because these groups deal with disability justice, they understand what medical racism looks like. And so I remember early on, on Twitter, there were lots of Emmy action participants and, and, and members who were like, oh yeah, we understand. And I was like, well, where's, where's this group coming from? And what do you understand? And they started to like write tweets to me and explain to me, oh yeah, this happened to me before. And this happened to me before. And, and um, one of my favorite people, Miss Wilhelmina, you know, in the group, you know, 70 plus years old, who said, I understand 50 years ago, this happened to me, and I was one of the only Black women to speak out about it. So while the numbers of Black women um, that have, have convened together is still small, the numbers are, are, are growing of, of those of us who want to educate. And so now I can rattle off a couple of names because I'm very proud of the fact that we were not okay with just being told to go home and just sit home and die. We, we wanted to fight for what we believed in, and we had groups like Emmy Action that helped to do that. Thank you. Could we talk for a minute about how do you define long COVID? Terry, you want to go first? Well, 
I actually think Shamir may want to take this uh, question. <laughs> okay, sorry. <laughs> and I can share why is there this connection between Emmy and long COVID? Okay. Absolutely. Yeah, you definitely can. Um, well, you know, long-term COVID, also known as the post-acute sequelae of COVID, um, is a form of COVID that goes beyond, you know, the two weeks or even uh, the couple of months. Now they don't have a, an end date because it used to be, oh, you have long COVID if you have it for maybe uh, six months. Now it's, if you have it for longer than a month to this unspecified amount of time, that's long COVID. Now there are over a hundred symptoms, just like ME and CFS, um, that we can we can talk about. Their breathing issues, their gastrointestinal issues, their neurological issues. Um, now I have uh, rheumatoid arthritis. I, I also, you know, have to admit, speaking to you, Judy, that I have uh, frequent urination issues that, that might lead to incontinence, um, which I'm afraid of, you know, and I have to go see a urologist for. Uh, there's cardio issues. There's speech issues. There are um, uh, mental health and psychological issues that arise. It, the interesting part is that we're watching so many people who have had COVID with heart issues and lung issues without the ability to return back to work. And they're slowly, Judy, making a connection to say, hmm, I had COVID three months ago and I haven't been able to go back to work for a full week. And I don't know why. And I'm sitting on the sidelines and I'm just like, I tried to tell you, but, and I understand it's very difficult for people to accept because, you know, because it, it can be very debilitating. But yes, um, long-term COVID now has been identified by the CDC and other health agencies as an actual condition. And it has been recognized as um, one that can cause disability. And for people like me, it has. So, you know, I had polio and polio affected people in many, many different ways, uh, from people dying to people having uh, respiratory issues, needing iron lungs or breathing machines, being quadriplegics. Many, many people who had polio and later on in life started to experience issues around polio that they hadn't experienced when they were younger. So, you know, COVID falls into a myriad of other types of disabilities, which when you can get an exact diagnosis and you can put it into a particular place, that's one thing. But with the types of uh, issues that both of you are raising, and me also as someone who had polio, things can change. And I, I guess, you know, one thing for me has been the ability to continue to be optimistic um, and to look at how to do things differently. You know, like what you were saying, Shamir, maybe now you're not able to be a teacher, but you're still looking at things that you can be doing, including working with other people and motivating other people and helping other people to become advocates. So I think one important aspect about this discussion is really allowing people to be able to be in the here and now and clearly the importance of getting appropriate diagnoses, being respected, and as women, knowing that frequently people aren't listening to us the same way, all of those things come into play. What do you feel, both of you, are some of the strong messages that you're bringing to other people? And what impact is this having on both strengthening people's own inner self, and then also becoming a part of the broader disability rights movement. Yeah, I mean, I guess I want to start by saying that, and Shamir alluded to this, you know, the Emmy community saw this coming a mile away. Many of us have had viral triggers to the onset of our disease. So when we started hearing about this virus, and it really started kind of impacting the United States kind of around the last third or fourth week in February, which by the way, I was in California visiting my ME doctor, took a plane out there with no mask on, but returned with a mask on. We knew what was coming. We were like, oh my God, folks are going to get this virus. Some people are going to die. Some people are going to get better. And some people are going to end up like us. And that's exactly what happened. 
So we went into major organizing to start getting out information to the community, particularly around stop, rest, pace, because we knew that there was probably going to be a percentage of people that were never going to get better from COVID and are probably really, they probably really have ME. And so we released our campaign Stop Rest Pace because part of having myalgic encephalomyelitis is we have post-exertion malaise, which with very little energy, either thinking or doing some basic tasks can literally crash our bodies. We can end up being in the bed for days, weeks, months. And one of the best ways to try to prevent that is to really not push through that activity you're doing to really listen to your body, to get in the bed, on the couch, rest. So stop, rest, and then pace. You know, we live in the United States where there's this like, achieve, 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 produce, 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 produce. And pacing, yeah, you can have a things to do list. And you know what? It's okay if you get one thing off of it or zero because you're trying to protect your body. So we started releasing stuff like that. We started really trying to reach out to people through social media, really start educating people through the press, trying to talk to NIH, the CDC, Health and Human Services. I mean, I remember posing a question to Tony Fauci about long COVID, and it was so early. It was like July of 2020 during the International AIDS Conference. He was like, I don't even know what long COVID means. And I thought, you're going to, and guess what? He does. And he does understand there's a connection to ME and that there's going to be a large percentage of people with long COVID who end up with an ME diagnosis. The issue is that. We've been dealing with ME for 40, 50, 60 years plus. This is not new. If folks had listened to us in the 80s, if they had taken us seriously, had they not dismissed us because of sexism, racism, ageism, ableism, all intersecting, I don't think people would be dealing with what they deal with now. But now we have this situation at hand, and now the NIH wants to fund long COVID studies. And now the CDC is interested in it. And now Health and Human Services, but nobody ever was interested in people within me. And so one of my hopes is that we can work as a collective to make sure this never happens again. You know, all these long COVID clinics are popping up all over the country. We should have had ME clinics popping up all over the country in the 80s. So they'd be prepared. And not to be negative, but many of these long COVID clinics are just pulling staff. They don't have any background in MECFS. They don't have a background in POTS or dystautonomia or cognitive issues. And they're not talking to our ME experts. As you all know, we have a healthcare provider shortage right now. We've always had a shortage of clinicians available to take care of people with ME. There's like maybe 15, maybe 20 in the country. So, you know, how do we impart that knowledge to these folks who are starting these long COVID clinics or in charge of them so they're not reinventing the wheel? Like every time I'm on Twitter, I'm seeing people go like, are you having this symptom? And I'm like, girl, we've been having this symptom for 40 years. Talk to <laughs> us. Come to any action. You don't have to re research this. So, you know, Judy, I appreciate your hopefulness, but I'm so jaded because of the HIV community. <laughs> no, 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 no. Okay. So for me, it's very important. And I think this is true for both of you, or you wouldn't be doing what you're doing. I mean, let's be real. We know the reality of what's going on. And I had polio in 1949. So the issues that you're discussing for 40 years are things I've been discussing for as long as I was old enough to articulate some of these issues. But I think what's important is that all of us are change agents. Yeah. And that we all believe that the rooms that we've entered where they're not being led by people who understand 
what's going on are struggling because they're not listening appropriately. They're not training enough people in these areas. And they're, I think, as Shamir was saying, instead of being able to listen to what people are saying, they're disregarding what people are saying. And in so doing that, they're not able to effectively assist people in moving through whatever it's going to be. You know, right now we're talking about long COVID, but we're talking about MECFS and polio and all these things and MS and whatever. But, you know, polio is still one of the biggest disabilities around the world because the vaccine didn't come into many countries till many years, you know, after it was here. But they have post-polio clinics. And there's a group called Post-Polio Health. And I really feel that it's valuable to look and really to learn more because there were clinics all over the country and they were very much led um, jointly between healthcare providers and people who had polio. And there were a few national conferences that I attended that post-polio health organized. Um, and for me as a post-polio survivor, what I always loved about these meetings was that there were so many people who had polio, you know, and it was a great opportunity for us to come together. There were panels and everything was integrated with healthcare providers and polio survivors. And there were people who had polio who were healthcare providers. You know, so there was such a mix. But I feel learning about things, as you were saying, you know, when you were saying, Terry, just come to us, we've got 40 years experience. It's another thing that I'm feeling is really important is to look at some of the other models that are out there with other groups. And Judy, if I may add to what Terry is saying, and, and Terry and I, we worked together so closely um, last year. Um, I think another part of what you're saying, and I'm going to say this about the hope that it gives me, is the fact that the ME community banded so quickly, as Terry mentioned, with the long COVID community. I had never cared before I got sick, of course. I'm going to be very transparent. As Terry mentioned, I too took a very long time to come to the consensus that I was a disabled woman. And I used to read a lot of Emmy actions, uh, tweets, and some other groups. And I would think to myself, I wish they would shut the hell up because I don't want to face the fact that I may have MECFS or I may be chronically ill for the rest of my life or disabled. And yet, look at look at us now. You know, I've linked with Terry to to really explore diversity and volunteering. I think about uh, last September when ME Action was one of the first groups to link with the long COVID community to protest outside of the White House, which Terry spearheaded and was out there chanting in the humid weather all day and all, oh my goodness, there was so many people, you know, there were people in wheelchairs, there were people who were leaning on um, allies, there were allies there. And I thought about that as a Black woman. I said, I want to see more people of color there. And Terry and I always talk about that. We want to see more others, other marginalized communities. And what we're trying to do now, as you mentioned, Judy, is go beyond just talking about our disdain with the medical community. We're talking about how can we reach volunteers who represent the full gamut of people who are suffering. And I think Emmy Action has their fingers on the pulse because they thought to themselves, we need a different kind of volunteer. We need a Shamir to think about cultural representation. We need a Black woman who is who has experienced being poor and disabled because of long COVID. We need other women and people of color to volunteer because I think the difference between we see social justice and we only really see what the media wants us to see, right? When people were uh, protesting for George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, we saw a full, full rainbow of people who protested and banded and armed together, arm in arm about, about the, the, the travesty of racial injustice and the police killing black people and, and people of color. However, when you talk about disability justice, people get scared. They get scared. And I know as a black woman, when I first heard, when Terry was talking about last summer about disability justice, I was like, oh, hell no. Like I was trying to like cower in like a turtle. As a black woman, I'm used to being power to the people, but I'm not used to thinking about what it takes behind the scenes 
to make these things like protests and educational forums and, and to send out marketing tools and letters and, and to talk to federal government and state governments and to whole state chapter meetings. I wasn't thinking about that. But, but see, the thing is that long COVID did was it caused us to once again, as it did with polio, as it did with MECS, to truly uncover and delve into our own biases and racism. And so what we want to do now is to call, to fully call people of color to come because there's so many people now suffering with long COVID that we need a full representation. We don't just need to see one group of people out there chanting and talking and we need to see people behind the scenes helping to make change. We need to see more people, not, you know, more people like me, more men, more women to add their cultural representations, where they're from, what they believe, um, their own challenges and situations to the volunteerism that happens because nothing happens if we can't represent all of us. We can't educate. We can't move forward. We can't impact um, change. We, we, we do all this talking about we want to be inclusive and, and everything, but we won't specifically call out and say we want to see more people of color in, in these spaces, you know, and that kind of burns me up. So I kind of get passionate about that. But I think that what we're trying to do is attract a volunteer that can can speak to all communities, not just one, but can add their voices to talk about what it's like to be a Latina in a nuclear household, you know, who has long COVID? And, and what is it like to be a, 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 a Black man who can't work and take care of his family? Um, you know, and even the allies. We're looking for allies in the long COVID MECFS community. And I think what we're looking for in our volunteers, we're just looking for people to come to have a seat at the table with all of their experience, just a, a different group of faces. We need new faces in the room. We need beautiful faces of color in the room to be able to make some changes. And I'm glad to be a part of that with Terry and others. And I think as we move forward, the ability to be part of the broader disability community, mm -hmm. I think is really important. When HIV in the early 80s was beginning to kind of pop up, I was living in Berkeley at that time. And um, I was working at the Berkeley Center for Independent Living. And there was money that the county of Alameda uh, was putting forward. And we applied for a grant to work within the AIDS community. And the reason why we did that is, you know, we were a disabled-run group. And there were people from the LGBTQ community um, working on staff. We wanted to be able to do training to encourage people not to start leaving their jobs, to look at what they needed to do and what they could do to keep as engaged as their bodies enable them to do. And it was too soon at that point. But over the years, I think, you know, what we've been seeing is the changes that have gone on within the AIDS community, where medications have come out that are helping people to really pretty much lead normal lives, whatever the word normal lives means. My point in this is, I would encourage you not just to talk about volunteers. I think it's a real issue of only looking at disabled people as volunteers. I'm not opposed to volunteers. I volunteer in lots of ways. But I think in the area of disability, we think too frequently about volunteering. Terry, what you were saying earlier, is know what your body lets you do. And I totally relate to that because many years ago, I started thinking about, well, what were the things that I could do? What were the things that I could do if I really pushed myself? And if I really pushed myself, what could be the positive or negative impact? And I really decided that I needed to know my body best. And I was wanting to look at the long-term nature of my disability. But the reason why I'm talking about not just using the word volunteerism is, you know, working with Centers for Independent Living or whatever organizations are being created is very important. And people, I feel, really need to, on a day-by-day -day basis, be analyzing what's going on within their body. And I think also looking at some of the bigger issues that we haven't discussed today, 
but things like home and community-based services for people who need assistance in the home to be able to get out of their home, for people who are being impacted by work disincentives that are not allowing people who need a combination of benefits plus could be working. So I want to know from you, how have your disabilities impacted your relationships with people that are or were a part of your lives? You know, one of the things that I want to share is that I feel like I was politicized because I'm a social worker. So I chose a degree that was, you know, based in human rights. But I think I was politicized by volunteering. And I think I was re-politicized when I got my diagnosis because I identify as a person with a disability. And I just want to kind of piggyback a little bit on at Emmy Action, our volunteerism, I don't think is probably the way that most people define it. I think it's a pathway to take action and to be involved in community. And so, you know, I'm hoping people are able to kind of look at it through that lens. But I think this work has impacted my relationships in that I think my parents are more educated about disability justice. I think my parents have been more educated about medical care and sexism and racism <laughs> that, you know, I've, I've experienced a lot of sexism, which is shocking. I'm kind of like Shamir, like maybe I was always treated that way. And I didn't realize it now that I have a disability. I'm like, you can't talk to me like that or dismiss me. You know, my relationships with other people, when I meet them, I think I'm much more thoughtful in that I actually don't really know what's going on with people that when I first meet them, I should not be making assumptions or just maybe doing some of the things around internalized ableism that I've been taught all of my life. I think I approach the world and look at the world differently now. I think I'm probably much more uh, sympathetic or empathetic with other people. And I think the other thing that having this disability has done for me is that I'm now part of this amazing community. We're not perfect. You know, sometimes we fight like sisters and brothers, which is not always fun and stressful and can cause a crash. But I just feel grateful to, you know, get to meet amazing people, honestly, Judy, like you and Shamir. I just wonder what my life would be like had I never met people in these communities. I think it would be less fulfilling. Um, and Judy, I want to be clear, though, about what I was saying about the volunteerism. Um, the thing about Emmy Action is that, no, I'm, we're not promoting only volunteerism for disabled people. What we're doing, there's a section that Emmy Action and the Ford Foundation and, you know, other people decided, hey, let's get anyone who wants to volunteer to send the message to help promote the message for the disabled community. So that can be care partners, that can be, you know, healthy people, Um, you know, it can be college students, it can be anybody who has loved ones or spouses or anybody who is disabled. It can be, you know, Torian, my boyfriend, he could decide one day, hey, I want to um, promote, you know, this, this event at ME Action for Long COVID and ME CFS. So no, this isn't just uh, curtailing what we as disabled people do to just limit it to volunteerism. Because um, even as I sit here now, I'm making a little piece of money. And even as, you know, I, you know, my computer has become my best friend because I do, I do work a little bit. You know what I'm saying? So no, this is just to encourage a different kind of volunteer into the group so that people are motivated and, and the messages are sent out that it's not just the disabled community doing the work. Because as you know, a lot of times we are the only ones that send out the message and then we crash and then we're tired. And then, then we're discontent and then we're disenfranchised. So this is a call for more people of color, more people with cultural experience to come and to help to send the message, not just, hey, you're disabled, you go out and volunteer and not know. Because you know what I learned, Judy, in the last three years? You know, you, you have to pay me for my time. If I sit and I engage and I give you my information and I give you pointers on how to engage with this community and that community, my time is important. And yes, I am a disabled woman. And yes, I spend a lot of time in the house, but I'm still about 
my paper. You know what I'm saying? So I just wanted to be clear about that. Um, my relationships, I think I thought about that last night. My relationships have evolved. I was writing in my journal and I, it was asking me about what's your definition of a support system? And as Terry mentioned, it is very important to me that people don't judge me as much, that their compassion level is on a thousand percent because I have now become the friend that I used to talk about. I've become the friend that I can't answer every phone call. I can't go out as often as I used to. I mean, I used to go out to the clubs and to the lounges and have a martini on Wednesdays and go out with the teachers and we would go and have a good time and, you know, go to this movie and that movie. And now I can't go anywhere without a mask. And I can't go anywhere. Usually I feel very um, apprehensive about being around uh, still large groups of people. And so I was in a uh, social group before I got ill and I had to I had to make some hard decisions because I realized that these people no longer um, we no longer shared a lot of the same understandings of life. And um, we had to go our separate ways. And at that time, uh, in 2020, I lost a romantic relationship and um, I was very afraid of uh, sharing with my family um, the first two or three months of my illness. I didn't want to tell my mom and my, and my other family members that I was sick. And, and the only reason I told them I was sick because I had gotten to the place and the point where I had been hospitalized and I needed support. I needed other people to advocate for me and to be my voice because I had become voiceless. Why was it difficult for you to tell them? Because I had been raised that if if you're not dying, then you're fine. Calling out and saying, I need something from someone. I need you to know I'm sick. I need you to know I'm not well. Filled me with guilt and shame. And so um, it completely turned my relationships upside down. However, in the midst of the whirlwind that took place, the tornado that probably rightfully so eliminated some of those wrong relationships, I was able to grow closer to my very best friend who called me every single day in 2020 to make sure I was okay. She talked me off the ledge of committing suicide in July, 2020, when I just was about to just give up on life and myself. My auntie, one of my favorite aunties, every time when I visit her or every time I talk on the phone to her, we talk almost every day. She's like, did you take your nap today? You take your medicine, you know, like she truly understands because I had to actually sit down and explain to people in a way that would make them understand. And um, also, thankfully, I was able to um, meet a guy who I had known for years prior. We went to college together 20 years ago who loves me despite my funky ways and attitudes. Sometimes I don't want to be bothered because, you know, having a chronic illness, you just simply sometimes just don't feel like it. And so he loves me and we've had long, long talks about what this looks like for me, what our relationship is going to look like. Because, you know, sometimes, and Terry, you may understand this too, and Judy too, some people will say to you, even the people that you love the most, they'll say, well, you don't look sick or, you know, you're fine and it's okay. And I have to remind him when he says that to me, like, that may be true, but here's what this actually is. And he always says, you know what, but I love you anyway. And so um, my life has changed. And I've met incredible people like Terry. I mean, when I taught school, I was beginning to develop some relationships with some white women um, at the school. You know, we were we were going out to lunch and we were part of this lunch group together. And we would we would hang out because I can get along with anybody. That That's that's just my personality. But I've helped to foster some incredible relationships with white women in a way that has enriched my life in ways I couldn't even tell you. I'm talking about women with privilege just because they're white have extended their hands, their opportunities. Terry, every chance she gets, she's always considering me. Well, Shamir, you should probably be a part of this. You could do this. I think you can do this. And I had never experienced that kind of love and care before. And so I have relationships and, and, and associations with so many people now and in some ways, it's made me, I hate to say this, it's made me grateful for the last three years. It's been a hell of a ride, but it's also been one of the best things that could have ever happened to me. Yeah, I mean, I think allowing people to understand that 
in part, what we're all doing is taking what people see as adversity and really looking at what we are able to do and the contributions we can make and ableism and its manifestations and how that can really reduce people with the label of polio or COVID or whatever, but people just in general. Limited expectations that people put on other people, I think is one of the very important aspects of what the disability rights movement is all about. So I'd like to try to end on a continuing positive note. So looking down the road over the next couple of years, what are your expectations, your hopes for where we'll be both on the issue of long COVID, but more broadly also? I think it's important that the MECFS community and other complex chronic illness communities, we have to stay linked. We have to stay connected because the larger the group gets, the more attention that we get. I can just see us now just being able to break down the walls of Congress and the Senate to be able to uh, have not only treatment, but research and, and care management and better health care. You know, I'm hoping for that, even though, you know, our, as we mentioned, the healthcare industry, along with the education industry, is, is very sparse right now. But I am really hoping that if we can stay connected and that if we have allies that are not only disabled people, but allies from everywhere, that we will be able to do more than just protest, that it will we can truly, truly, truly um, impact major change in healthcare. We've already started. The work that the MECFS community and, and the polio community and the diabetes community has started, the AIDS and HIV community has started, that is profound work. So it helped to open up the door. It made it a little bit easier for us to walk through. But if we could all just kind of link up and remember that these issues are not new, but here is a condition that kind of puts the a bigger spotlight on all of them, then I see us making great change in the federal capacity. And I'd like to see more of that. I'd also love to see um, more people of color talk about their experiences more because that is an area that's still three years later for me, and I'm sure years later for Terry and, and Wilhelmina Jenkins, th that's an area that still has been left untapped. And so I love to see more stories uh, that are represented by the media, more of our own storytelling, more of our own education in, in our communities um, about the impact of long COVID and other complex chronic diseases uh, or illnesses. And, you know, sadly, Judy, more people who have been diagnosed with long COVID and MECFS, we're seeing more people die by suicide. And I love to see more focus in education be on the impact of mental health treatment and care on those of us with complex illnesses because we can't afford to lose more people in this fight. Especially when in many ways, what would likely assist people was like you were saying, Shamir, your friend calling you every day. Terry, what's your vision for the next couple of years? Well, I would ditto everything that Shamir just said. <laughs> I think the other thing that I would add, you know, in addition to coordinated care around the country. Could we actually identify a biomarker for long COVID and ME so we could have a targeted treatment? I think the other thing is, is that get rid of this stigma of not believing people. You know, I have a background in clinical education and I've always believed the diagnosis is in the story. You have to listen to us. We are the experts in our body. You see me for 10 to 20 minutes. I'm with my body 24 hours a day. I'm the expert. So you have to believe us. Stop thinking that, you know, we're malingerers. We don't want to work. You know, all these caricatures around disabled people. We want to contribute to life. We want to have a fulfilling life. We need you to help us through science and medical care, be the best possible human we can be. But you have to start with treating me with respect and you have to believe me. And that goes not only for the healthcare industry, but the political industry too. You know, I'm sure we've all been in a meeting with some elected official who looked at us like they didn't believe us. 
So I would echo everything that Shamir says, and I want to live in a world that doesn't stigmatize people with, with disabilities and treats us as human beings. Thank you both very much. And I think for people who have invisible disabilities, in many ways, it's more complex because, you know, when I enter in a room, I'm using a wheelchair. Now, people's views may be, I can't do anything because I can't walk. And then conversely, for people who have invisible disabilities, the thought that you don't really have a disability, what your, your malinger is exactly things that you've been saying. So I feel in unpacking some of what we've been discussing, it really means we need to be working with multiple communities. Um, and I think for the audience, we mentioned a number of different kinds of disabilities. We know there are thousands of disabilities and thousands of different disability organizations representing people from 10 people in a particular category to people where there are thousands of people. These are the people that we need to be bringing together. I think what both of you really have discussed in a very powerful way is the importance of the voices of disabled people coming together, working with allies to really be able to shine a light on some of these issues that may be long COVID related, but also are much broader. And so I think as the long COVID community is becoming, you know, more organized, becoming a part of the disability community. And, you know, what you were saying, Shamir, earlier was that at one point you would be hiding from ever thinking that you would have a disability. And now I think what you're both explaining is Disability is an important part of who you are. So thank you, everyone. I hope that this discussion was provoking for you. And I look forward to talking to you again with you on the next Human Perspective. That history won't forget us Or try to minimize our pain And so why wait? The Human Perspective is produced by me, Kylie Miller, and Judy Human. If you want to find out more information about this episode's guest or resources relating to the discussion, check out the description of this episode or visit judithhuman.com. The intro music for The Human Perspective is Dragon, which is produced and performed by Lachi, Yontero, and Warren. The outro music is I Wait by Galen Lee. <laughs>